This is um, from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 1, verses 9 through 13. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness 40 days, being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. This is the word of the Lord. Please pray with me. God, we do believe that your word endures forever. And God, we want your word planted in our hearts. We want your, your word to grow up in our lives. We want our lives to be conformed to your word. And so God, we pray now as we consider Mark chapter 1 and the, bapt- the baptism and temptation of Christ, that God, you would use your holy word to produce fruit in each of our lives. God, would you cause your word to come alive to us today? God, would you illuminate our minds and our hearts? Holy Spirit, would you give us the capacity and the ability to understand your word, but also to heed your word and actually apply your word to our lives? So please, we ask God that you would meet us in this time in your word Minister to your people, in Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. Vijay, thank you for having that little moment right there. Vijay's always so unbelievably polished when he's up here. It's great to see him struggle once in a while. Just reminds us we're all human and we all need grace. And today we're going to learn that there is an abundance of grace available for all of us. Here we are in Mark chapter 1, the the gospel of Mark, it began last week, uh, our sermon series did rather, it began last week and in verse 1 this gospel begins with this amazing statement, this announcement, this is Mark 1.1, it says the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And so we talked last week about how Mark, the author of this book, is setting out with an agenda, and that agenda is to make clear to you and make clear to me the gospel or the good news about Jesus Christ, Jesus the Messiah, the Savior of the world. But now in verse 9, where we began our reading today, we're introduced for the first time in the narrative to Jesus. And we find out here that Jesus, the Messiah or the Christ, is Jesus from Nazareth. The man from Galilee. And the first thing that Mark wants to relay to us about Jesus of Nazareth, who happens to be Jesus Christ, God's Messiah, is not his genealogy. It's not his family tree. It's not even his birth narrative, a story about his birth, which is the way that Matthew and Luke begin their telling of the story of Jesus. Mark doesn't go there. Instead, what he does is he begins talking about Jesus by talking about two deeply significant events that take place at the beginning of his earthly ministry, right before his public ministry is launched. 
Verse 14 in Mark 1 is the beginning of Christ's public ministry. He begins preaching there. But the verses that we're covering today, again, are sort of the the prelude to that. They're preparatory for Christ as he gets ready, as he's prepared for his public ministry. Significantly, last week in the first eight verses in Mark, we were talking about the people of God being prepared for the Messiah. So John the Baptist was there and he was preaching, hey, you need to repent of your sins. You need to be baptized. You need to be be prepared to meet the Lord. So it was about the people being prepared for the Messiah. And in a sense, you could say that this week we are talking about the Messiah being prepared for the people. Because before he ever started preaching, before he ever started healing people or feeding people, Before he ever started driving out demons or raising the dead, Jesus was baptized and then he was tempted by the devil in the wilderness. And these two events were, listen, necessary in the life and ministry of Jesus. They were prerequisites, you could say, for the public ministry of our Lord and Savior. And so we're going to take these two profound events in turn here with the text. Let's begin then with the baptism of Christ. This is verses 9 through 11. Here's verse 9 again. It says, in those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. In what days? In those days. The days when John was performing a baptism. The days when John is at the Jordan River. He's baptizing the masses of people. And then Jesus comes to him in those days to be baptized by John in the Jordan. Now immediately a question confronts us as readers of this gospel. And the question is straightforward. It's why would Jesus, the Messiah, our Savior, why would he be baptized. Last week we learned that John's baptism, this is verse 4, was a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of our sins. So get the picture there. John is standing there at the Jordan River. The, the, The masses of people are coming to this prophet in the wilderness and he's preaching to them and he's saying, you need to confess your sins and you need to repent or turn away from your sins And you need to be baptized as evidence of that decision so that you might be prepared to meet the Lord. So why would Jesus, the sinless one, submit to a baptism of this kind? Well, here are two reasons. Reason number one is to identify with those he came to save. Jesus gets baptized in part to identify with those he came to save. We get our first hint of this from the Gospel of Matthew. In Matthew's telling of the baptism of Jesus, listen to what Matthew records. This is Matthew 3, starting in verse 13. It says, Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you. And do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. So notice here in the first place 
that John did not believe that Jesus was in need of his baptism. Right? The, the verse says John would have prevented him. When Jesus comes to be baptized by John at the Jordan, John is looking at him and he is saying, you don't need this. I don't want to baptize you. And he actually kind of pulls a reverse Uno card and is like, I need your baptism. It actually has to work the other way. Jesus is the one who's coming to baptize with the Holy Spirit. Verse 8 said, John's baptizing with water, but Jesus is going to baptize with the Holy Spirit. And John looks at Jesus and says, you have no need of my baptism. I need your baptism. You're the greater, I'm the lesser. And so John is clearly not under the impression that Jesus has sins that he needs to repent of and that he needs to be baptized regarding. John is aware of that. But notice in the second place that Jesus desires to be baptized in order to fulfill all righteousness. That's verse 15 of Matthew 3. While it is true that Jesus had no sins of his own to be forgiven of, He came into this world to take away the sins of his people and to make them righteous before God. And Jesus knew that in order to make us righteous before God, he would need to fully enter into our plight as sinful humans. 2 Corinthians 5.21, I preached on this a few weeks ago. It's a great verse that says this, for our sake... He, speaking of God the Father, made him to be sin who knew no sin, speaking of Jesus, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So Jesus becomes our substitute. And God the Father is going to treat at the cross, treat Jesus as if he was guilty of every single sin you and I have committed, if we've put our faith in him. So that you and I could be recipients of Christ's righteousness. And so, for Jesus, by undergoing a baptism here at the start of his ministry that is associated with repentance, he's identifying with the very people he came to save. Now check this out. Through his baptism, Jesus identifies with us. And through our baptism as Christians, according to the Bible, we identify with him. See, in Christian baptism, we are making a public declaration that I belong to Christ and the body of Christ, the church. So through baptism, you are being identified with him. And so I just want to ask at this point, have you done that? Have you been baptized in obedience to the commands of Christ in order to be identified with Jesus? And if not, what does that say about your commitment or lack thereof to Jesus, the Messiah? He was baptized in order to identify with you and we are baptized in order to identify with him. So friends, this is the first reason here why Jesus was baptized. It was to identify with those he came to save. The second reason comes to us in verses 10 and 11. Let's read them together. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. 
And a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. The second reason why Jesus was baptized by John was to identify him as the Messiah and the Son of God. It was to identify him as the Messiah and the Son of God. Immediately, Mark writes, after Jesus is baptized, three things happen. And in total, those three things point to the fact that Jesus and Jesus alone is the Messiah and the Son of God. The heavens are torn open, the Spirit descends on Jesus, and the Father affirms his identity. It begins with the heavens being torn open. Again, Mark writes there, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open. Now notice that Mark doesn't write that the heavens are just being opened. He says the heavens are being torn open. And that's significant because this is actually the answer to a prayer prayed by the prophet Isaiah over 700 years earlier. Here's Isaiah 64 verse 1. Isaiah the prophet writes, he says, Oh, that you would rend, or that word can be translated tear. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains might quake at your presence. Friends, at this very moment in history, 2,000 years ago, at the baptism of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, God answered Isaiah's prayer. The heavens are torn open, and God himself does come down. God, the Holy Spirit. Spirit. And what does the Holy Spirit do? It says the Spirit descends on him like a dove, comes to rest on Jesus. Now, I grew up in a Calvary Chapel church. That was my upbringing and my background. And in Calvary Chapel, their logo is a dove, which is great. It's awesome. And they get that logo idea from the baptism of Jesus. But we're not to think and Calvary Chapel is not suggesting this to my knowledge, that the Holy Spirit looks like a dove. Or even worse, that the Holy Spirit is a dove. The Holy Spirit is just that. He's spirit. But the coming of the Spirit like a dove then refers not to how the Spirit looked, but how the Spirit came. The Spirit came down in a gentle descent like a dove and rested on our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And according to John's gospel, the Holy Spirit remained on him. It wasn't that the Spirit came and touched Jesus and moved away from him. The Holy Spirit came. God himself is coming down from the heavens and the Spirit is now remaining on Jesus from this day forward during his earthly ministry. This then marks the moment that Jesus is anointed for ministry. See, in the Old Testament, and many of you know this, especially if you were with us in our studies in the book of Samuel, in the Old Testament, prophets and priests and kings were often anointed with oil to set them apart for the ministry that they were called to. And that oil that they were being anointed with was symbolic of the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit's selection of that individual and the Holy Spirit's empowerment of that individual for the ministry that they had been called to. But notice that here Jesus is not being anointed with oil. 
as a symbol of the Holy Spirit's presence. Jesus is being anointed by the Holy Spirit himself, coming down and resting upon him. This means that Jesus is the ultimate anointed one. Last week we talked about how Christ is a title. Christ means anointed one. And so all of the other Christs or anointed ones in the Old Testament, who again had oil poured on them and they were set apart for the mission of God, all of them were ultimately pointing forward to this Christ, the one who would come and he would have the Spirit himself rest upon him and he himself would baptize people with the Holy Spirit. Jesus of Nazareth is the ultimate Christ, the Messiah, the Savior of God's people. And it was through this anointing with the Holy Spirit that it was made clear to everybody, starting with John, that Jesus is in fact God's Messiah. Over in John's gospel, here's what we read, John 1, 31 through 34. John is speaking here, John the Baptist. He says, I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. So notice one of the purposes of John's baptism is that through his baptism, the Messiah was going to be revealed. The Messiah would be made known. Verse 32, and John bore witness. I saw the spirit descend from heaven like a dove and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, he on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And John says, and I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. So check it out. John is baptizing hundreds of people in the Jordan. Who knows, perhaps thousands. But when he baptizes this one individual, Jesus from Nazareth, the heavens are torn, the spirit descends and remains on Jesus, and that is the alert to John the Baptist, aha, this is the Messiah. Part of the reason I'm doing this baptism was to find this guy, to identify this guy so that this guy could be made known to the nation. And to the people of God. And here he is. And John begins to testify that this is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And it's not just that he sees the Spirit descend on Jesus. That convinces him that this is the Messiah. The Son of God. It's also the words of affirmation that come from the Father himself in verse 11. A voice came from heaven. You are my beloved son. With you I am well pleased. What a scene. I mean, think about how remarkable this moment in human history is. Where God the Son enters into the waters of the Jordan to be baptized. And God the Spirit descends on the Son and remains on the Son. And God the Father speaks with an audible voice from heaven and declares, this, this is my Son. And with him, I am well pleased. Now, Greek scholars tell us that the word beloved here can also carry the connotation of unique or only. And so, at the baptism of Jesus, we are finding that this man from Nazareth, Jesus, 
is God's specially loved son. He's unique. He's God's only son in truth. He is set apart from every other person on planet earth. And with him, God the Father is well pleased. So much for any suggestion that Jesus got baptized because of some sin in his own life. No, the father looks at the son here at about 30 years of age and says, I am well pleased. Everything in the life of Jesus was pleasing to the father. And listen, Christian, here's the staggering reality is that if you put your faith in Jesus Christ, then the Bible says that you're in Christ. The Holy Spirit actually takes you and places you in Christ and Christ via the Spirit is in you. And therefore, what is true and spoken of Christ here at his baptism becomes true and spoken over your life. If you are in Christ, the Father looks at you and he says, you are my beloved son or daughter. And with you, I am well pleased. Your life, no matter what you've done in your life, your old life, your sinful life, has been buried with Christ. And now you're in Christ and God sees his righteousness and it's your righteousness righteousness now because you're in him and he's in you. And somehow, in the mysterious grace of God, for all time, he's going to look at your life and say, with your life, I am well pleased. That's the only way to ever hear that affirmation from God. So through the baptism of Jesus, we see that Jesus is marked out as the Christ. This is the anointed one of God. This is the one who came to deal with the sins of God's people and to baptize us with the Holy Spirit. And at his baptism, he's revealed to be the unique son of God. The only one who could truly have it said that his life is fully pleasing to the Father. Thus, the baptism of Jesus is a remarkable event. It's full of significance for him. It's full of significance for you and for me. From a doctrinal standpoint, one of the remarkable features of the baptism of Jesus is that it reveals for us God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit all in one setting. It's no surprise that this passage was an important proof text for the early church as they attempted to articulate their doctrine of God. Because this text shows us that the God of the Bible is not a God who at times manifests himself as the Father, and then at other points manifests himself as the Son, and then at other points still manifests himself as the Holy Spirit. This text shows us what the church has taught and believed for 2,000 years, That according to the Bible, there is one God who has eternally existed as three persons. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And this is what the word Trinity is attempting to convey. This is a deeply profound moment. Jesus is baptized. He's anointed by the Holy Spirit. And you wouldn't be out of place if you expected that the very next thing we read is now he went out and he began preaching and he began healing and he began feeding the masses. But that's not what we find at all. We read something quite different. We read in these next two verses of the temptation of Christ. Look at verse 12. The spirit immediately drove him out 
into the wilderness. Now, this is the second time that Mark is going to use one of his favorite words, the word immediately. It says the Spirit immediately drove him. In verse 10, it was when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw. Now, Mark's going to use this word over 40 times in his gospel. It's immediately or as soon as. Okay, he, he, he has an incredible pace at which he's trying to tell his story. It's an action-packed gospel. Again, it's the shortest of all of them. He just gets to the point. Mark's form of storytelling, in a lot of ways, is kind of similar to modern cinematography. Where, and this is true especially of like YouTube videos and stuff, but basically it's like just cut to the next shot. Cut to the next shot. Really, really quickly. Give it another uh, angle to see it from to keep the interest of the viewers. Because our five-year-olds are not going to watch your video if it's the same shot for more than five seconds. So you just got to cut to the next one. And, and Mark's form of storytelling is like that. I mean, he's, he's an ancient writer, but he's, he's constantly pivoting to a, a different camera angle for you to see the next thing that is happening in the life of Jesus. And by doing that, he's actually a really engaging writer. I mean, he just unveils this baptism of Jesus and then immediately shifts our attention to the temptation. And that's only going to be two verses, and then he's going to jump into the next thing, and the next thing, and the next thing, and it's captivating. And if you're speaking about it, it's kind of tiring. But what immediately happens in verse 12 is that the Holy Spirit drives Jesus into the wilderness, where he will be tempted by the devil. And I wonder if this challenges in any way your understanding of the work of the Holy Spirit in the lives of those that God loves. Usually when we talk about the ministry of the Holy Spirit, we talk about things like this, like the Holy Spirit empowering us for ministry and service. Or we talk about the Holy Spirit teaching us and illuminating our minds and our hearts. Or we talk about the Holy Spirit comforting us. And being our comfort and our counselor. And all of that's true. And all of that's wonderful, of course. But here, friends, you have to notice that the Holy Spirit, after anointing Jesus for ministry, drives him into the wilderness. A place where our Lord is going to face hardship and conflict and challenge and deep temptation. And so the next time that you find yourself in the wilderness, in a time of great trial, in a season of fierce temptation, or deep hardship, or pain, perhaps the Holy Spirit will bring to your mind the temptation of Christ to help you to see that that wilderness experience that you're in is not evidence that your God has somehow abandoned you, but rather that it's evidence that God is working in you and that God intends to work through you. Because that's exactly what he does with our Lord Jesus Christ. One of the things that trips up our discipleship so often is that we misread the circumstances of our lives. Too many of us have been taught wrongly that when you say yes to Jesus and you become a disciple of Jesus, then he's going to make everything smooth in your life from that day forward. So you'll have no relational conflicts anymore. You'll have no financial hardship. Everything's going to work out great. Okay, the weather will never be gloomy. 
Shoot, you might even get to live in a place like Santa Barbara, which is 75 and sunny all year. It's all just going to be perfect. And then all of a sudden, it's not. And, and we often stop and we go, oh my gosh, what happened? There's something wrong here. Maybe God abandoned me. Maybe God left me. Maybe I don't really belong to God. And yet, again, we see the Spirit is at work here, driving Jesus into this place of great hardship and difficulty. And God has a purpose and a plan in this wilderness. So this leads us to ask, why was Jesus tempted? Somebody could easily say, well, because Satan hates him and hates everything he was about, so Satan opposed him. And of course, that is true. But we can't miss the fact that it was the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, who immediately drove him into the wilderness. Translation, this is God's doing. God is the one who initiates this conflict. And if God initiates this conflict, that must mean that God has a purpose in sending Jesus into the wilderness. So why is Jesus being tempted? Why does he endure this? Well, I want to offer for us three reasons. There's more that could come up, but here's three. To succeed where we all failed to sympathize with our weaknesses, and finally, to put the kingdom of darkness on notice. First, to succeed where we all failed. Where are we getting that from? Look at verse 13 again, if you would. Mark writes this, he says, and he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. What we're meant to see with that line is that where Israel, the nation Israel, failed, Jesus now succeeds. See, the number 40, combined with the word wilderness, would have triggered the mind of every Jew to the wilderness wanderings that you read about after God delivered his people from Pharaoh and Egypt. Because Israel spends 40 years wandering where? In the wilderness, experiencing great testing. And Israel is called in the Old Testament the Son of God. It's God's Son. But through their wilderness wanderings and testings and temptations over 40 years, Israel proves to be God's very disobedient son. And therefore Israel and an entire generation of Israelites perish in the wilderness and they don't inherit the promised land. They failed miserably at that time of testing. And so here comes God, the son, Jesus of Nazareth, and he goes out into the wilderness And he is tested for 40 days. And Jesus is called God's son. And yet what we find with Jesus is that Jesus is God's perfectly obedient son. Where Israel failed, Jesus now succeeds. It might be possible to add to that in this text the idea that where Adam failed, Jesus succeeded. Now let me say this, even if this isn't in this particular text, this is doctrinally and theologically true. Romans chapter 5, the Apostle Paul tells us that Jesus is the new Adam, the second Adam. Um, But in this text, it might be possible to actually see an allusion to the failures of Adam as well. Notice the line here in verse 13 where it says, He was with the wild animals. Now some scholars suggest that there's an allusion here, a possible allusion to the Garden of Eden. Remember when Adam and Eve are in the Garden of Eden before they step into sin and they fall, they're there and they're with all of the animal kingdom. The wild animals are there and they are at perfect peace with them. 
A snake is no danger to them. A scorpion is no threat. I don't know about you, but I hate spiders. Doesn't even matter what it is. I won't even pick up a daddy long leg, and I've known since I was three they're harmless. I hate spiders. Not a threat to Jesus. Lions, tigers, bears, none of that a threat. I said Jesus. I meant Adam and Eve in the garden. But the fall, of course, changed all that. The second that they sinned, the animal kingdom and the wild animals, animals become a threat to Adam and Eve and to every human sense. And yet here is Jesus going into the wilderness and Mark says he's with the wild animals and the wild animals do him no harm. And so just as Jesus is the new Israel, so too is he the new Adam and where Adam failed, Jesus now succeeds. And I want you to think just briefly about the remarkable contrast between the failure of Adam and Eve, the temptation that they faced, and the temptation that Jesus is now going to face. If we go back and we put ourselves in Adam and Eve's shoes, they're in a garden paradise. Okay, they have a lush garden to live in. There's water in abundance. There are beautiful fruit trees and presumably vegetables that are just bursting with life, the most beautiful ones you've ever seen, in abundance. Their stomachs are full of food. They have companionship with a perfect and sinless spouse. And they have zero degrees of separation between themselves and their God as God actually walks with them and talks with them in the garden in the cool of the day. Jesus is in a desolate place. And Jesus is alone. He's in isolation. We know from the other gospel accounts that he's fasting over these 40 days, so he is physically, literally starving. His body is probably at the point that it's beginning to shut down with some of its functions. He's completely alone. He's isolated. He's starving. And he's in a very dry and arid place. Adam and Eve had every reason to succeed and they failed. Jesus had every reason to fail and he succeeded. And it just reminds us of how amazing and how strong and how wonderful our Savior is. Because where Adam and Israel and you and me yielded to sin many times, Jesus yielded to righteousness every time. Without a single exception, he faced all that hell could throw at him and he did not buckle. What an amazing savior we have. So Jesus was tempted to succeed where we all failed. But this leads us to the second reason why he was tempted. Jesus was also tempted so that he could sympathize with our weaknesses. This is what the book of Hebrews tells us. In Hebrews chapter 4 verse 14 We read, since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Friends, the temptation of Christ, which really could just stand as a picture of the entire life of Christ, the whole incarnation, because all of it was a temptation, all of it was a trial for him, it allowed Jesus to sympathize with you and with me in our trials and in our temptations. 
He has been there. He has endured temptation and difficulty and limitations just like you and I have, yet without sin. And because Jesus has endured far more than you and I ever will, as far as temptation comes, then Jesus makes it clear to us that he has grace to offer us in our times of need. Now, some of you might be questioning what I mean by that statement that Jesus endured far more than any of us will ever endure. Some of you are saying, well, I understand the temptations of Jesus, but I have really, really hard temptations that I've struggled with in my life. C.S. Lewis helpfully reminded us that the person who has endured the greatest temptation is the person who never gives in to it. Pastor and author Paul Tripp illustrates this really helpfully this way. He says, I want you to imagine a strong man who bends metal bars. You guys ever seen that before? This is kind of like an old school kind of strong man thing. Uh, They would take metal bars and they would bend them in front of an audience. Okay, I'm going to illustrate this for us by grabbing a... No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) That would be an embarrassment of myself. But So they, they would grab a metal bar, right? The first one. And they would take it and they would hold it out this way. And then with a little bit of exertion and force, they just bend it. Boom, just a quick snap and bend that metal bar. Then they'd set that one down. They'd grab another metal bar that's maybe a thicker gauge of steel. It's a little bit more difficult. They'd grab that bar and all of a sudden they'd start with a little bit more exertion, just putting pressure on that bar and boom, they'd bend that one and then they would drop it. And eventually they would get to a bar of steel that they would pick up and grab and they'd with all of their might, begin to flex and and put pressure on that bar, and yet the bar would not bend. And that would be their limit. And Paul Tripp asked the question, he says, which one of these bars endured the greatest force? Would it not be the third bar? Because the other bars bent before the strong man had reached his limit. He had more that he could have given if necessary, And in in the same way, the only person who has ever experienced the full fury and strength of Satan's temptations is the one who never bent. And of course, that is Jesus, our Savior. And so friend, I would submit to you that no matter how strong temptation works on you, Jesus has felt it more strongly and resisted. And he looks at you, precious saint, in your times of temptation, and he says to you, I know what you're going through, and I know there's grace enough to help you in your hour of need. Jesus sympathizes with us in our temptations. I want to quickly give us a third reason why Jesus was tempted, and it's to put the kingdom of darkness on notice. Oftentimes, the temptation of Christ is thought of as a defensive moment in the ministry of Jesus. It's a sort of a defensive mission. Jesus is out in the wilderness, he's vulnerable, he's unsuspecting, and then all of a sudden the devil sees him and tries to exploit that vulnerability and attack him. And from Satan's point of view, that's probably the way he saw it. But the temptation of Christ should almost certainly be read from the opposite perspective. Because again, the spirit drove him into the wilderness. This was God's plan, this was God's move to send Jesus into the wilderness, And while he is there, Jesus defeats Satan. And the rest of the Gospel of Mark is going to show Jesus continuing to have total dominance 
over the dominion of darkness. Demons are going to flee at his command. Demons are going to tremble at his presence over and over again. And so taking that into consideration, the temptation of Christ is not a defensive battle that Jesus fights. Rather, it's his first offensive strike against Satan in the Gospels. Jesus is sent as the newly anointed Messiah into the wilderness, into the place of darkness and deprivation, into the very place where Satan has had victory over God's people in the past, and he sends Satan running with his tail between his legs. Satan has been put on notice. Satan is now aware that the kingdom of God is broken into his domain and there's nothing that he can do to stop it. A major part of the gospel of Jesus is that through his life and his death and his resurrection from the dead, he has triumphed over Satan and his kingdom of darkness. Here's Colossians 2.15. Paul writes that Jesus disarmed the rulers and the authorities. This is speaking of demonic, uh, demonic beings. And he put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Jesus' victory in the wilderness was the first battle. And it put the kingdom of darkness on notice. But his death and his resurrection was the fatal blow. Through the cross and the empty tomb, Satan has been decisively defeated. And listen, here's the end of the story. In the, hopefully by God's grace very near future, Christ is going to return and he's going to cast that serpent of old into the lake of fire, which is the second death. Yes, Satan is real. The demonic realm has power, but for those of us who are in Christ, we need not fear. His days are numbered and his knees are knocking. Jesus is Lord. One day every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that he is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And the wise ones are those who are making that confession now. In closing, I just want to come back to something that I said a few minutes ago, and I'm going to say it exactly the same way. No matter how strong temptation works on you, Jesus has felt it more strongly and resisted. He looks at you, precious, precious saint, in your times of temptation and says, I know what you're going through, and I know there's grace enough to help you in your hour of need. Jesus knows that there is grace enough to help you in your hour of need because there was grace enough to help him. For those of us who are in Christ by faith, the same grace that sustained Jesus in his temptation is available to you to sustain you through every temptation that you face. What did that grace look like in Jesus's life that enabled him to stand firm in his faith? It looked like this. Number one, the abiding power of the Holy Spirit. Again, John said that the Holy Spirit remained on him in John 1.32. How did Jesus stand firm in his faith and resist the devil? Answer, in the power of the Spirit. See, it was to Jesus' human nature that Satan leveled all of his temptations. And it's his human nature that was wholly dependent on the Spirit for strength. And friends, we who have put our faith in Christ are filled with the Holy Spirit. He is in us and he is with us and he has power available to us to resist the devil at every single turn. 
Romans 8, 12 through 13 says, So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. The Spirit has the power to help you put to death the deeds of the body. So that's the first thing. Jesus had the abiding power of the Holy Spirit, and brother and sister, so do you. The second thing is the ministering presence of the angels. Did you see that last line in verse 13? Mark writes that the angels were ministering to him. It's interesting. I would bet that most of you, like me, have very little awareness of the role that angels play in our lives. In fact, I would suggest that, at least for me, I probably think more and am more conscious of the role that demons and Satan play in the world and in my life. Knowing that they're trying to deceive people and draw people away from God. And I think of that often. But the scriptures are clear that there are angels who serve us and minister to us and protect us. Jesus here is ministered to by the angels, and it's not only here. When Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane, we read in Luke twenty-two forty-three, right before he's going to go to the cross, there appeared to him an angel from heaven strengthening him. Friends, in the book of Hebrews, chapter 1, verse 14, the author calls angels ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation. I mean, think about that. God dispatches angels to strengthen you, to protect you, to help you. And someday when we get to heaven and we get to run this thing back and watch the tape, we're going to be blown away, I'm, I'm assuming, at how often there were actually spiritual beings, angels, who were involved in the details of our lives that kept us from major, major failures and misery. Do you ever thank God for the angels he provides to serve you? That would be a worthwhile endeavor. So Jesus has the abiding power of the Spirit. He has the presence of angels. And finally, he has the affirmation of God's fatherly love. You have to see the logic of this. And we're going to close here. That first, at his baptism, Jesus is affirmed in his identity. You are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. And once that affirmation has come to him, he is then driven out into the wilderness where he is tempted and tested for 40 days. And he now has the strength to endure that. And friends, it is only with the assurance of God's love that we will have the grace and strength to face every new temptation that you're going to face in your life. Satan will try to get you to question your identity over and over again. Every time your life enters into a wilderness season, it's interesting, he even did this to Jesus in the wilderness. In Matthew 4, 3, it says, the, the tempter came and said to him, if you are the son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. I'm trying to introduce a question. You know, if that's who you really are. You got to prove it. But Jesus was so secure in his identity as the son of God that he didn't need to prove it to anybody, not to Satan and certainly not to himself. And I just want you today to leave, and I want to leave today, with a reminder that if you are in Christ, then your identity is secure, and you are a blood-bought son or daughter of the Father. He loves you, and he is pleased with 
you. We have to remind ourselves of that daily. We have to walk in that constantly. Because temptation is going to come in the form, often, of questioning your identity. Are you sure you belong to God? How could you think that then? Are you sure you're really a daughter of God? Then how could you have done that? And the enemy's going to try to get each of us to doubt our identity over and over and over again. But for those of us who are in Christ, again, we are beloved children of God. And so armed with that knowledge and filled with the Holy Spirit and aided by the very angels of God, we all have the resources that we need to overcome each and every temptation and trial that we face. So friends, let us walk in courage and confidence this week, knowing whose we are, that we belong to the Lord, that he is our God and we are his people. And let us walk in the confidence that if we are in Christ, we have all of the resources we need to make it to the very end. Amen? Amen. Please pray with me. God, we thank you for the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. God, we thank you this morning for this amazing passage of scripture that shows us more of who our Savior, Jesus, is. Jesus, we thank you that you came to this earth 2,000 years ago. You humbled yourself. You came to this earth and you became a man for our sake, for our salvation. And Jesus, we thank you that for 33 years you walked in faithfulness, in perfect obedience to every command of the Father on our behalf. And Jesus, we thank you that you went to a cross where the sins of all of your people were placed upon you and you died in our place and you endured the wrath of God so that our sins could be removed. And Jesus, thank you that after you rose again and after you ascended to heaven, you sent the Holy Spirit down to each one of us. And there's this reenactment of your baptism at our baptism. The moment we say yes to Jesus and identify with him, the spirit remains on us. And in the power of the spirit, we have all that we need to live lives that are pleasing to you and ultimately that will be pleasing to us. So God, thank you today for your grace. We love you, we worship you, we honor you. And we pray that your grace would sustain us through this next week until we gather again in Jesus' name. Amen.